Welcome everyone to episode 27 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I'm your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. Ganshi Meg Wingard cups her mittened hands around the radio receiver to block the cold September wind. When she speaks into it, her voice is slow, soft, deliberate. They found a herd coming in on the north side, two kilometers away. Get in position. Over. Crouched between rocks and shrubs, we hear the horsemen's yips and whistles before the herd comes into sight. Within seconds, twelve wild Argali sheep gallop in our direction, kicking up a cloud of desert dust in their wake. Expertly leaping over ditches and scaling rocky outcrops, the Argali race forward as the horsemen drive them toward the nets. From SmithsonianMag.com, a story by Alex Morris. The decades-long effort to protect the world's largest sheep. The horsemen had been riding for hours, surveying the park to find the Argali. After slowly herding them in the direction of the capture nets, a technique known as drive netting, they were now pushing the animals the last 200 yards. If netted, the researchers would have about 10 to 15 minutes to do a complete workup on each animal, take measurements, attach satellite radio collars, and assess the Argali's health before releasing it. Any longer, and the animal could overheat. Two dozen scientists, students, veterinarians, and volunteers wait silently, hidden behind bushes, shrubs, and rocks that run alongside the 90-yard stretch of collapsible netting. The team has only three satellite radio collars left. A successful capture would mean an end to the field season. With seconds to go, the lead ewe veers away from the trap. The rest of the herd follows suit, and all twelve Argali skirt the capture nets by mere meters. We lost them. We lost them, says Wingard, the Mongolia program director at the Denver Zoological Foundation. One by one, the researchers emerged from their hiding places. In the distance, dust hovers over the defeated horsemen, their red and blue deal, traditional Mongolian clothing worn by nomadic herders since the days of Genghis Khan, stand out as pinpricks of color on the otherwise dry and barren landscape. At the northern edge of the Gobi Desert, rolling plains and tall grasslands give way to rugged, rocky terrain where steppe and desert ecosystems collide. The weather in this nexus region is fierce, as mild, sunny mornings can transition to whipping wind and snowstorms in a matter of hours. Despite its forbidding climate, Mongolia's Iknart Nature Reserve is home to a diverse array of wildlife, including wolves, saker falcons, Siberian ibex goats, Cenarius vultures, vipers, and Argali, the largest wild sheep in the world. Argali can weigh up to 400 pounds, which makes them roughly twice the size of North American bighorn sheep. With a light brown coat, the animals are known for their impressive spiraling horns, and Argali ram's corkscrew horns can grow up to six feet long. For more than 20 years, Wingard and her team have been helping to protect this iconic species by working in partnership with local herders and their families in Iknart. She now leads the longest-running study of Argali anywhere in the world. Argali are such an important species for Mongolia, Wingard says. They are a source of pride for local people. They want to keep them here for their children's children. Argali not only serve as the symbol of Iknart, they're the reason for the park's existence. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1990, Mongolia became a democratic state. In March 1994, American ecologist Richard Redding traveled to Mongolia as part of a United Nations-led effort to assist the Mongolian government with the transition from a communist-style command economy to a free market economy. It was during this visit that Redding met Amgalanbatar Amga Suk one of Mongolia's foremost Argali experts. Amga was looking for support to set up a long-term, rigorous study of Argali. 
At the time, the population of this species in Mongolia was plummeting. Between 1985 and 1994, the numbers had fallen by more than 65%, from an estimated 60,000 individuals to just 20,000. But studying Argali is inherently difficult. The animals live among wild, remote desert mountains that are often difficult to access. An even bigger challenge is that Argali are terrified of humans, and for good reason. While Argali hunting was officially banned in 1953, poaching has continued unabated. As a result, the animals scatter at high speed when they detect humans, even if separated by miles of rugged terrain. In 1999, Amga and Redding identified the area now known as Iknart Nature Reserve as the ideal location for their research given the high number of Argali that inhabit the region. Iknart which is located nearly 200 miles southeast of Mongolia's capital city, Ulaanbaatar, and comprises 160,000 acres, remains one of the last remaining Argali strongholds in the world. But how to study a species that is so skittish, even observing them from a distance is challenging. They were so darn shy, Redding says. We had to stop the poaching. Then we had to get them used to seeing people. Only then could we collect the observational data we needed. The team, which Wingard joined after meeting Redding while working at the Ministry of Nature and the Environment, began collaborating with law enforcement and local community members to find and arrest poachers who were illegally hunting Argali. It was mostly people from outside the area, Redding says. We would find poached animals and we'd arrest poachers on a regular basis. As a result of their efforts, poaching gradually began to decline in Ikenart, and after years of careful management, it has been virtually eliminated. Word gets out in a place like Mongolia that if you go to Ikenart, you're going to get arrested, Redding says. By 2001, the Argali population in Mongolia had declined even further. Fewer than 15,000 animals remained in the country. Despite the success in reducing poaching at Ikenart, illegal hunting persisted in western Mongolia, and Argali faced a new threat, domestic livestock. We have between 30,000 and 40,000 livestock here at Ikenart, and maybe 700 to 800 Argali sheep, Wingard says. We think there's a huge overlap in diet where these animals are potentially competing for forage. For more than half a century, under Soviet influence and communist control, Livestock numbers in Mongolia were tightly regulated. But in 1990, as the country transitioned to a free market democracy, herders were suddenly free to own as many animals as they wanted. And with increasing international demand for cashmere, the numbers of domestic animals, especially cashmere goats, skyrocketed. Today, livestock in Mongolia outnumber people 22 to 1. To conserve Argali and protect their habitat, the researchers need to understand where the animals graze and the extent of their home range. But to obtain these data, scientists need to safely capture Argali so they can attach satellite radio collars. These collars allow the researchers to digitally map the animals' movements, identifying possible areas of overlap with livestock herds. In the early 2000s, the team began the drive netting capture process, which continues today. The method relies almost entirely on the skill and knowledge of local herders. Working with the herders is critical to the success of the research, Amga says. Local herders know their animals and their landscape better than anyone. They know where to find the Argali, their winter habitat, their birthing areas, and their main territory. They also handle the wildlife with the utmost care, respect, and love, he says. Supporting the research and protecting wildlife in Ikenart not only provides a modest amount of income for the herders, it's also considered an honor. They think of themselves as volunteer rangers, Wingard says. The data collected as part of this study have helped to establish a core zone of critical habitat for Argali, which is kept relatively free of livestock thanks to the voluntary efforts and support of local herders. According to Redding, the core zone has already had a positive impact on lamb survival and Argali population growth. By all definitions, Ikenart's community-based conservation efforts have been a success. Argali populations have more than doubled in the park since the launch of the project, 
despite declines elsewhere in Mongolia and across Central Asia, and the impact stems well beyond Argali. Since the launch of the project, researchers have studied Siberian ibex goats, hoitered gazelle, cenarius vultures, and many other species that inhabit Ikenart. One afternoon, as the research team took a short break between wildlife surveys, I asked one of the herders, a young man in his early 20s, why he wanted to work on this project. He said he wanted to continue the legacy of his father, who had worked with the research team for 16 years. My purpose is to protect nature and conserve wildlife for future generations. An entire ecosystem now has a robust local conservation initiative inspired by the largest sheep in the world. From TheGuardian.com, here's a story by Robert McFarlane, What Lies Beneath. We live in an age of untimely surfacings. Across the Arctic, ancient methane deposits are leaking through windows in the earth opened by thawing permafrost. In the forests of eastern Siberia, a vast crater yawns in softening ground, swallowing thousands of trees. Local Yakutian people refer to it as the doorway to the underworld. In the cursed fields of northern Russia, permafrost melt is exposing 19th century animal burial grounds containing naturally occurring anthrax spores. A 2016 outbreak infected 23 people and killed a child. Retreating glaciers are yielding the bodies of those engulfed by their ice many years before, the dead of the ongoing conflict in Kashmir or the White War of 1915-18 to 18 in the Italian mountains. Near the peak of San Mateo, three Habsburg soldiers melted out of a serac at an altitude of 12,000 feet, hanging upside down. At Camp 1 on Everest in 2017, after a period of unseasonal warmth, a mountaineer's hand appeared, reaching out of the ice into which he had been frozen. Gold miners in the Yukon recently unearthed a 50,000-year-old wolf pup from the permafrost, eerily preserved right down to the curl of its upper lip. Spring bulbs pushed themselves up into flower far earlier than a century ago. Last August's heat wave in Britain caused the imprints of long-vanished structures, Iron Age burial burrows, Neolithic ritual monuments to shimmer into view as parch marks visible from the air. Aridity as X-ray, a drone's eye view, back in time. The same month, water levels in the River Elbe dropped so far that hunger stones were revealed. Carved boulders used since the 1400s to commemorate droughts and warn of their consequences. One of the stones bears the inscription, When do mixeist don wine? If you see me, weep. In northern Greenland, an American Cold War missile base sealed under the ice 50 years ago with the presumption that snow accumulation would entomb it forever and containing huge volumes of toxic chemicals, has begun to move toward the light. This January, polar scientists discovered a gigantic melt cavity, two-thirds the area of Manhattan and up to 300 meters high, growing under the Thwaites Glacier in West Antarctica. Thwaites is immense, its calving face is the juggernaut heading towards us. It holds enough ice to raise ocean levels by more than two feet, and its melt patterns are already responsible for around 4% of global sea level rise. These Anthropocene unburials, as I've come to think of them, are proliferating around the world. Forces, objects, and substances thought safely confined to the underworld are declaring themselves above ground with powerful consequences. It is easy to aestheticize such events, curating them into a wunderkammer of weirdness. But they are not curios, they are horror shows. Nor are they portents of what is to come. They are the uncanny signs of a crisis that is already here, accelerating around us and experienced most severely by the most vulnerable. These unburials also disrupt simple notions of Earth history as orderly in sequence with the deepest down being the furthest back. Epics and periods are mixing and entangling. 
Our burning of the liquefied remains of carboniferous forests melts glacial ice that fell as snow in the Pleistocene, raising sea levels for a future Anthropocene. Both time and place are undergoing what Amitav Ghosh has called the Great Derangement, torqued into new forms by the scales and speeds of anthropogenic change at a planetary level. The problem, writes the archaeologist Pora Peterstoder, is not that things become buried far down in strata, but that they endure, outlive us, and come back at us with a force we didn't realize they had, a dark force of sleeping giants roused from their deep-time slumber. In the summer of 2010, I made the first notes towards a book called Underland, about burial and unburial, deep time and journeys into darkness, which would eventually take almost a decade to write. It was hard that summer not to think of the Underland, for three extraordinary stories were unfolding, dominating global news for months. The Deepwater Horizon disaster, the entrapment of 33 Chilean miners beneath the Atacama Desert, and the eruption of Iceland's Eyjafjallajökull volcano. On 14 April, following years of low-level activity, Eyjafjallajökull entered a violent phase of eruption. It ejected more than 250 million cubic meters of tephra, creating an ash cloud that rose to five miles in height and caused the grounding of most flights within European airspace. Rock dust was sucked into the lungs and engines of northern Europe and settled on landscapes where it would form a thin strata layer in the future rock record. It took until autumn for the volcano to be declared dormant, far longer for those who lived within its shadow to recover. On 20 April, 41 miles off the Louisiana coast, the borehole of a semi-submersible oil rig called Deepwater Horizon burst. The rig-level blowout killed 11 crewmen and ignited a fireball that could be seen on shore. The rig sank two days later, leaving oil gushing from the seabed at a water depth of around 1,500 meters. More than 200 million gallons of oil flowed into the Gulf of Mexico, rising as a slick on the ocean that was visible from space. It would take until the autumn to cap and seal the well successfully so that it could be declared effectively dead. The consequences for the ecosystems and coastal communities of the Gulf persist today. Twice in a week, the underland erupted catastrophically into the upper world. A double hammer blow was dealt to our containment systems for Earth's buried matter. One of these events was of human making, the other beyond human control. Both produced a global sense of unsettlement at such unruly, obscene surfacings. Then, on 5 August, while the oil and ash still drifted, a massive cave-in occurred in Chile's San Jose copper and gold mine, trapping 33 miners at a depth of 700 meters. Alive, but seemingly beyond rescue. The world and I were gripped by the fate of the Chilean miners, their situation triggered various fears of claustrophobia and tephophobia. Their plight resembled the plot of both a contemporary thriller and a classical myth. It took 69 days to rescue the men as their supplies of food and water dwindled. On 13 October, they were all brought, one by one, to the surface by a drilled shaft in a capsule designed with NASA's help. Around a billion people watched the men's miraculous extraction, the mine's most precious yield. NASA's involvement was appropriate. The men had returned from a realm as alien as that of deep space. We know so little of the worlds beneath our feet. Look up on a cloudless night and you might see the light from a star trillions of miles away, or pick out the craters left by asteroid strikes on the moon's face. Look down and your sight stops at topsoil, tarmac, tow. I've rarely felt as far from the human realm as when only ten meters below it, held in the shining jaws of a limestone bedding plane, first formed on the floor of a warm Cretaceous sea. The Underland keeps its secrets well. Last December, scientists revealed their discovery of a vast, deep-life ecosystem in the Earth's crust, twice the volume of the world's oceans, containing a biodiversity comparable with that of the Amazon, 
and teeming with 23 billion tons of microorganisms, hundreds of times the combined weight of all living humans. Only in recent decades have ecologists traced the fungal networks that lace woodland soil, joining individual trees into intercommunicating forests via a wood-wide web, as fungi have been doing for hundreds of millions of years. The notion of discovering a new mountain in Britain is laughable, but in Derbyshire in 1999, cavers broke through into a cavern now named Titan, since it confirmed as the biggest known natural chamber in Britain, large enough to hold St. Paul's Cathedral four times over. It was as if another Ben Nevis had been found somewhere near Chesterfield. A thousand feet below ground in northern Italy, I repelled into a huge rotunda of stone, cut by a buried river and filled with dunes of black sand. Traversing those dunes on foot was like trudging through a windless desert on a lightless planet. The Underland's impenetrability to vision and its obstructiveness to entry have long made it a means across world cultures of alluding to what cannot be easily seen or said. Trauma, memory, grief, death, suffering, the afterlife, and what Elaine Scarry calls the deep subterranean fact of pain. Deliberately to place something in the underland is often a strategy to shield it from view. Actively to retrieve something from the underland often requires effortful work, physical or psychoanalytical. For nearly two decades, I've been writing about the relationships of landscape and the human heart. I began on the summits of the world's peaks, wishing to solve a personal mystery, but also a historical one. From that high ground, over the course of five books and 2,000 pages, I've followed a downwards trajectory, exploring the stories of matter that lie beneath the surface of both land and mind. The descent beckons, as the ascent beckoned, wrote William Carlos Williams in a late poem. For years, I traveled to places where the underland deepens drastically or has exerted particular force on the upper world from Bronze Age burial complexes in southwest England to remote Arctic cave art sites on Norway's northern coasts and the blue depths of time archived by the ancient ice of Greenland. I accompanied those who have thought hardest about what is held beneath us and what rises to meet us, including archaeologists, glaciologists, nuclear scientists, urban explorers, mythographers, miners, historians of atrocity, and physicists seeking dark matter in laboratories far underground. I filled dozens of notebooks, some of which were destroyed or rendered illegible by the environments in which I carried them. I spent time with remarkable people, including a mycologist called Merlin, who conjured the wood wide web into visibility for me, and Bjornar Nikolaisen, a Norwegian fisherman with seer white eyes who led the resistance to plans for oil drilling in pristine Arctic waters at the cost of a crisis in his mental health. I also gathered underland stories from Aeneas's descent into Hades through the sunken necropolises of Italo Calvino's invisible cities and the wind cave cosmogony of Dakota Sioux, who accounts of the many cavers, cave divers, and free divers who have died seeking what Cormac McCarthy calls the awful darkness inside the world. Often unable to communicate to themselves, let alone others, what metaphysical gravity drew them down to death. Why go low? Obsession, incomprehension, compulsion, and revelation were among the recurrent echoes of these stories, and they became part of my underland experiences too. Before beginning these journeys, I was given a talisman, a small owl carved from a whale bone by an artist called Steve Dilworth. The mink whale from which the owl flew had washed up on a Hebridean shoreline, another untimely surfacing. Dilworth sliced one of its ribs into oval cross sections, and then, with two blade strokes for the eyes and two for the wings, he cut one of those cross sections into the form of an owl. The object has an Ice Age aura of making, he gave me the owl on the condition that I carried it with me, to help me see in the dark. I did so, 
though there were times I wished for blindness rather than owl eyes. In the Underland, I've seen things I hope I'll never forget, and things I wish I had never witnessed. We have never been modern, writes Bruno Latour. Since before we were Homo sapiens, humans have been seeking out spaces of darkness in which to find and make meaning. The earliest known works of rock art in Europe, painted ladders and hand stencils on Spanish cave walls, have recently, astonishingly, been dated to around 65,000 BP, more than 20,000 years before Homo sapiens is thought to have reached Europe. Neanderthal artists left these images, spitting mouthfuls of red ochre dust against their hands to make ghostly outlines on the cold rock. I saw contemporary versions of those prehistoric handprints in several of the places I reached. One autumn evening in the south of Paris, I lowered myself into a shaft dug into the floor of a disused train tunnel and entered the quarry and catacomb labyrinth that extends for more than 200 miles beneath Paris. We stayed down in that invisible city for three days, the longest I've ever gone without seeing sun or sky. One afternoon, traversing miles of flooded tunnel beneath Montmartre, we passed a stenciled handprint outlined in lime green paint on a wall. It had been left by a Holocene graffiti tagger instead of a Neanderthal cave artist, using a spray can instead of a mouthful of ochre, but it shared the impulse to make a mark in the dark. The oldest of Underland stories, in fact, the oldest of stories, concerns a hazardous descent to reach someone or something consigned to the realm of the dead. A variant to the Epic of Gilgamesh, written around 2100 BC in Sumer, tells of such a descent made by Gilgamesh's servant Enkidu to the netherworld to retrieve a lost object on behalf of his master. Enkidu sails through storms of hailstones that strike him like hammers, Waves attack his boat like budding turtles, but he still reaches the netherworld. There, however, he is imprisoned, only to be freed when the young warrior Utu opens a hole to the surface and carries Enkidu back out on a lofting breeze. Up in the sunlight, Enkidu and Gilgamesh embrace, kiss, and talk for hours. Did you see my little stubborn children who never knew existence? asked Gilgamesh desperately. I saw them, answers Enkidu. Yes, journeys into darkness have long been made to recover or to store what is precious, and to dispose of what is harmful. Classical literature is rich with what were known in Greek as the katabasis and the nekia. Contemporary versions of the nekia are presently underway in Greenland and Antarctica, where polar scientists drill up ice core from hundreds of meters down and hundreds of thousands of years ago scrying the stories this cryo-archive holds in order to model future climate. Scientist as Harispex, Augur as Augury. I have never been in a more beautiful, frightening space than when abseiling into a glacial melt shaft on the east coast of Greenland. The glass glint of its polished sides, its creaks and roars, its humming blue light, and the sense of dropping into a pore in the skin of an immense creature possessed of a pliant, patient liveliness. It is a distinctive power of claustrophobia, more so than vertigo, that it retains its ability to disturb, even when experienced indirectly, as description. While being told stories of confinement below ground, people shift uneasily, step away and look to the light, as if words alone could wall them in. But still they listen, I remember as a ten-year-old reading the account in Alan Garner's novel, The Weird Stone of Brisingamen, of two children descending the mining tunnels that riddle the sandstone of Cheshire's Alderley Edge. Deep inside the edge, the narrowing tunnels threatened to trap them. They lay full length, walls, floor, and roof, fitting them like a second skin. Their heads were turned to one side. The only way to advance was to pull with the fingertips and push with the toes, since it was impossible to flex their legs at all, and any bending of the elbows threatened to jam the arms helplessly under the body. Then, Colin's heels jammed against the roof. He could move neither up nor down, and the rock lip dug into his shins until he cried out with the pain. But he could not move. 
Those passages took cold grip of my heart, emptied my lungs of air. Reading them now, I feel the same sensations, but the situation also exerted an immense narrative traction to me. Colin could not move, and I could not stop reading. In his book, Vertical, Stephen Graham documents the dominance of the flat tradition of geography and cartography, and the largely horizontal worldview that has resulted. We find it hard to escape the resolutely flat perspectives to which we have become habituated, Graham argues, and he finds this to be a political as well as perceptual failure, for it blinds us to the sunken networks of extraction, exploitation, and disposal that support the surface world. The whole earth is not solid, but everywhere gaping and hollowed with empty rooms and spaces and hidden burrows, wrote Athanasius Kircher in his epic early modern exploration of the Underland, Mundus Subterraneus. Human activity has added hugely to these hollows since Kircher, drilling more than 50 million kilometers of oil field boreholes alone, showing ourselves to be a burrowing and burying species, as well as a building one. Force yourself to see more flatly, orders George Perec in Species of Spaces. Force yourself to see more deeply, I would counter. Now, more than ever, we need to understand the Underland. Our flat perspectives feel increasingly inadequate to the deep worlds we now fashion and inhabit, and to the deep-time legacies we're leaving. Deep-time is the phrase coined by John McPhee in 1981, to denote the dizzying expanses of Earth history that stretch in all directions from the present moment. It echoes James Playfair's description of the abyss of time he glimpsed while viewing a strata unconformity at Sikar Point in 1788, when geology was first emerging as a science. McPhee and Playfair's phrases both evoke a temporal vertigo, for deep time is measured in units that humble the human instant, millennia, epochs and eons instead of minutes, months, and years. Deep time is kept by rock, ice, stalactites, seabed sediments, and the drift of tectonic plates. Seen in deep time, things come alive that seemed inert. New responsibilities declare themselves. Ice breathes. Rock has tides. Mountains rise and fall. We live on a restless earth. There is a perilous comfort to be drawn from deep time. An ethical lotus-eating beckons. What does human behavior matter when Homo sapiens will have disappeared from Earth in the blink of a geological eye? Viewed from the perspective of deserts or oceans, morality looks absurd, crushed to irrelevance. A flat ontology entices. All life is equally insignificant in the face of eventual ruin. We should resist such inertia thinking. Indeed, we should urge its opposite. Deep time as radical perspective, provoking action, not apathy. The shock of the Anthropocene requires a new time literacy, a rethinking of what geologist Marcia Bjornerud calls our place in time. This is already happening. Deep time is the catalyzing context of intergenerational justice. It is what frames the inspiring activism of Greta Thunberg, and the school climate strikers, and the Sunrise campaigners pushing for a Green New Deal in America. A deep-time perspective requires us to consider not only how we will imagine the future, but how the future will imagine us. It asks a version of Jonas Salk's arresting question. Are we being good ancestors? Rebecca Altman, an environmental sociologist, has memorably tracked the modern history of time-bombing, the toxic legacies that are left by one generation for its successors, of which high-level nuclear waste is the most obvious example. Time bombing is already occurring laterally, of course. William Gibson famously remarked that the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. In today's Anthropocene, the affluent experience the future in the form of technology, while the poor experience the future in the form of calamity. At its best, deep time thinking contests the eschatologies of fundamentalism and the chaotic short-termism of so much present politics, foregrounding instead the rights of what Rebecca Solnit, writing of the climate strikers, calls the ghostly billions not yet born. In our crisis epoch, it recognizes that the continued survival of our species and others depends on just such a stretched perspective 
rather than the crash-ended narrative arcs of disaster capitalism or fetishized apocalypse dreams that foreclose action and preference for spectacle. In The Great Derangement, Ghosh identifies three of the main challenges posed by the Anthropocene to literature and culture. How to represent unfoldings of action and consequence within deep time, how to recognize the aliveness of the more-than-human world, and how to come to terms with the profound decentering of human presence. Ghosh is especially interested in the realist novel's adequacies in these respects, and he finds the form not only to have been rendered obsolete by circumstance, but complicitly to have engaged in what he calls the concealment of environmental breakdown. However, he writes hopefully, new hybrid forms will emerge, and the act of reading itself will change once again, as it has many times before. Such hybridity has long been at work in science fiction, of course. Now it's happening in nonfiction, too. New online magazines such as Emergence are redefining what an Anthropocene essay might look like and how it might be read. Experimental climate change reportage such as Elizabeth Rush's Rising, major environmental histories such as Floating Coast, Bethesda DeMuth's study of the Bering Strait, Laurette Savoy's brilliant account in Trace of Deep Time, Race and the American Landscape, and innovative print essays such as Emily Rabiteau's recent Climate Signs. All are recognizing the polytemporal weaves of culpability, vulnerability, elementality, and urgency that characterize the present situation. When readers turn to the art and literature of our time, Ghost writes, imagining a future reader gazing back at the cultures of the Anthropocene, will they not look first and most urgently for traces and portents of the altered world of their inheritance? Underland was composed in anticipation of that future reader's scrutiny. It moves over its course from the dark matter formed at the universe's birth to the nuclear waste futures of the Anthropocene. Underland's first chapter is a descent, its last is a surfacing, and during the voyage of 4.6 billion years made between those two remote points, crossing landscapes from the Mendip Hills to the Slovenian Highlands, the Lofoten Islands to Greenland's ice cap, and from western Finland to a Cambridge spinney a mile from my home, where nine springs rise from the bedrock chalk. What started as a journey into pure matter became, to my surprise, an exploration of hidden human depths, both wondrous and atrocious. We all carry underlands within us, but only rarely acknowledge their existence. My wish was to answer Gosha's call for writing that might actively unconceal the traces of our fast-altering world. Its untimely surfacings, its entombments, its visions of both darkness and light. The hope was to find a hybrid non-fiction form that might, by speaking both of the bright time of the lived human moment and the more-than-human resonances of deeper times, be at once ancient and urgent. While riding Underland, I've come to think of claustrophobia as one of the distinctive experiences of the Anthropocene, a sense of time and space running out, of being in the grip of Earth forces triggered by human actions but exceeding human control of feeling, in short, as theorist Timothy Morton bluntly puts it, stuck. Underland first surfaced into my mind while the Chilean miners were being rescued from the Mesozoic dark. I finished its final paragraphs in June last year, while the world was obsessed by another Underland story that trembled on the brink between matter and myth. The disappearance into the cave labyrinth under a mountain of the Thai footballers and their coach, here, again, were the brutal presences of water, rock, and weather. Here were fragile lives held in indifferent darkness. Here was the intervention of an arrogant man-god in the form of Elon Musk. Here, again, were bravery, love, and quests into darkness in the hope of illumination. Here were echoes of countless prior underland stories, from the myth of the Minotaur through Scott's ballads of Thomas the Rhymer, to Inuit tales of glaciers engulfing and then releasing travelers. One of the marks by which the rescuers knew the boys were further into the flooded system was, of course, a handprint pressed into the mud of a chamber wall. As I wrote towards my book's end, so the story of the footballers unfolded towards its conclusion. 
opening out and spiraling down at last to the miraculous fact of children surfacing from inside the earth, one by one, their parents embracing them as they wept tears of joy and relief, able to at last imagine the future again. The first signs of a problem started to emerge around 2014. More young people said they felt overwhelmed and depressed. College counseling centers reported sharp increases in the number of students seeking treatment for mental health issues. Even as studies were showing increases in symptoms of depression and in suicide among adolescents since 2010, some researchers called the concerns overblown and claim there simply isn't enough good data to reach that conclusion. From theconversation.com, a story by Gene Twinge. The mental health crisis among America's youth is real and staggering. The idea that there's an epidemic in anxiety or depression among youth is simply a myth, psychiatrist Richard Friedman wrote in the New York Times last year. Others suggested young people were simply more willing to get help when they needed it, or perhaps counseling centers' outreach efforts were becoming more effective. But a new analysis of a large representative survey reinforces what I and others have been saying. The epidemic is all too real. In fact, the increase in mental health issues among teens and young adults is nothing short of staggering. One of the best ways to find out if mental health issues have increased is to talk to a representative sample of the general population, not just those who seek help. The National Survey on Drug Use and Health, administered by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, has done just that. It surveyed over 600,000 Americans. Recent trends are startling. From 2009 to 2017, Major depression among 20 to 21-year-olds more than doubled, rising from 7% to 15%. Depression surged 69% among 16 to 17-year-olds. Serious psychological distress, which includes feelings of anxiety and hopelessness, jumped 71% among 18 to 25-year-olds from 2008 to 2017. Twice as many 22 to 23-year-olds attempted suicide in 2017, compared with 2008, and 55% more had suicidal thoughts. The increases were more pronounced among girls and young women. By 2017, one out of five 12 to 17-year-old girls had experienced major depression in the previous year. Is it possible that young people simply became more willing to admit to mental health problems? My co-authors and I tried to address this possibility by analyzing data on actual suicide rates collected by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Suicide is a behavior, so changes in suicide rates can be caused by more willingness to admit to issues. Tragically, suicide also jumped during the period. For example, the suicide rate among 18 to 19-year-olds climbed 56% from 2008 to 2017. Other behaviors related to depression have also increased, including emergency department admissions for self-harm, such as cutting, as well as hospital admissions for suicidal thoughts and suicide attempts. The large increases in mental health issues in the National Survey on Drug Use and Health appeared almost exclusively among teens and young adults, with less change among Americans ages 26 and over. Even after statistically controlling for the influences of age and year, We found that depression, distress, and suicidal thoughts were much higher among those born in the mid to late 1990s, the generation I call iGen. The mental health crisis seems to be a generational issue, not something that affects Americans of all ages, and that, more than anything else, might help researchers figure out why it's happening. It's always difficult to determine the causes behind trends, but some possibilities seem less likely than others. A troubled economy and job loss, two typical culprits of mental stress, don't appear to be to blame. That's because U.S. economic growth was strong and the unemployment rate dropped significantly from 2011 to 2017, when mental health issues were rising the most. 
It's unlikely that academic pressure was the cause, as iGen teens spent less time on homework on average than teens did in the 1990s. Although the increase in mental health issues occurred around the same time as the opioid epidemic, that crisis seemed to almost exclusively affect adults older than 25. But there was one societal shift over the past decade that influenced the lives of today's teens and young adults more than any other generation. The spread of smartphones and digital media like social media, texting and gaming. While older people use these technologies as well, younger people adopted them more quickly and completely, and the impact on their social lives was more pronounced. In fact, it has drastically restructured their daily lives. Compared with their predecessors, teens today spend less time with their friends in person and more time communicating electronically, which study after study has found is associated with mental health issues. No matter the cause, the rise in mental health issues among teens and young adults deserves attention, not a dismissal as a myth. With more young people suffering, including more attempted suicide and more taking their own lives, the mental health crisis among American youth people can no longer be ignored. In our series of letters from African writers, Ghanaian journalist and former government minister Elizabeth Oheen explains why clock-watching in Ghana is a waste of time. When Japan's Olympics minister, Yoshitaka Sakurada, was forced to make a public apology after arriving three minutes late to a parliamentary meeting, I wondered how many ministers of state here in Ghana thanked God they were not Japanese. From the BBC.com, a story entitled, The Country Where Everyone is Expected to Be Late. It is accepted practice in Ghana that public officials are late to functions. Indeed, they are expected to be late. I know how entrenched this is in our attitudes because when I was a minister of state, I would regularly arrive at functions at the scheduled time and find that nobody was expecting me to have arrived on time. A number of us in that government thought that if we could get the president to arrive on time for functions, it would change the culture. So the minders of then-president John Kufour set about on an ambitious scheme to get him to be on time for public functions. I remember the first time he got there at the scheduled 9.30. There was near pandemonium. There were diplomats running to get to their seats, there were dignitaries rushing madly, and there were traditional chiefs abandoning their usual majestic pace of walking and trying to get to their seats as a bemused President Kufour looked on. We were determined to persist with getting the president to functions on time in the hope that if people realized the president would be at a function at the advertised time, everybody else would endeavor to get there on time. It was not a pleasant experience. I had always felt deep embarrassment that diplomats sent to our country seemed to spend so much time waiting for functions to start, but then I discovered they were often late themselves. Or maybe after some time in Ghana, the diplomats go native and accept that nothing's expected to start on time. I'm ashamed to admit we abandoned the experiment after three tries. The main arguments against continuing came from the protocol and security people. They insisted the president should not be taken to places that were not ready. At his inauguration, our current president, Nana Addo Dankwa, Akufo Addo, bemoaned the culture of official functions starting late. He promised he would set a personal example and be on time. He has since then been making a special effort and arrives on time for functions. This, however, does not appear to have led to much change in attitude towards timekeeping. Meetings scheduled to start at 10 routinely start anything between 45 minutes to an hour late. The crazy traffic situation in our towns and cities probably accounts for some of the lateness as it is impossible to predict journey times and also provides justifiable excuses for arriving late. A journey from my house to an office where I regularly go for meetings can take 20 minutes or 40 minutes or an hour or, as it did on one occasion, one hour and 50 minutes. But the traffic surely cannot be the explanation for people arriving for lunch at 1600 when they have been invited for 1230. 
And why would your host think it is okay to invite you for lunch and start serving food at 1500 or invite you for dinner at 1900 and offer you food at 2100 This culture of total disregard for the scheduled time extends to and affects all other parts of our lives. My dressmaker promises to make a dress for me in three weeks, and I'm lucky to get it in three months. But the problem is not only about starting things on time. There is a correspondent problem of not ending things on time either. The church I go to advertises and indeed starts at nine, but there is no advertised closing time, and so the service closes at 11.30 or noon or 13.00 or, as it once happened on a feast day, 1500. It's better not to look at your watch on such occasions. We are simply not bound by time here. Here's a kind of follow-on to one of the stories from last week. Another story about a deadly fungus. This one's entitled mass amphibian extinctions globally caused by fungal disease. And this is from phys.org, phys.org. It looks like it originally came from Australian National University. An international study led by the Australian National University has found a fungal disease has caused dramatic population declines in more than 500 amphibian species, including 90 extinctions over the past 50 years. The disease, which eats away at the skin of amphibians, has completely wiped out some species, while causing more sporadic deaths among other species. Amphibians, which live part of their life in water and the other part on land, mainly consist of frogs, toads, and salamanders. The deadly disease, chytridiomycosis, is present in more than 60 countries. The worst affected parts of the world are Australia, Central America, and South America. Lead researcher Dr. Ben Scheel said the team found that chytridiomycosis is responsible for the greatest loss of biodiversity due to a disease. The disease is caused by chytrid fungus, which likely originated in Asia where local amphibians appear to have resistance to the disease, said Dr. Scheel from the Fenner School of Environment and Society at ANU. He said the unprecedented number of declines places chytrid fungus among the most damaging of invasive species worldwide, similar to rats and cats, in terms of the number of species each of them endangers. Highly virulent wildlife diseases, including chytridiomycosis, are contributing to the Earth's sixth mass extinction, Dr. Scheel said. The disease we studied has caused mass amphibian extinctions worldwide, We've lost some really amazing species. Dr. Scheel said more than 40 frog species in Australia had declined due to the fungal disease during the past 30 years, including seven species that had become extinct. Globalization and wildlife trade are the main causes of this global pandemic and are enabling the spread of disease to continue, he said. Humans are moving plants and animals around the world at an increasingly rapid rate introducing pathogens into new areas. Dr. Scheel said improved biosecurity and wildlife trade regulation were urgently needed to prevent any more extinctions around the world. We've got to do everything possible to stop future pandemics by having better control over wildlife trade around the world. Dr. Scheel said the team's work identified that many species were still at high risk of extinction over the next 10 to 20 years, from chytridiomycosis due to ongoing declines. Knowing what species are at risk can help target future research to develop conservation actions to prevent extinctions. Dr. Scheel said conservation programs in Australia had prevented the extinction of frog species and developed new reintroduction techniques to save some amphibian species. It's really hard to remove chytrid fungus from an ecosystem, if it is in an ecosystem, it's pretty much there to stay, unfortunately. This is partly because some species aren't killed by the disease, he said. On the one hand, it's lucky that some species are resistant to chytrid fungus, but on the other hand, it means that these species carry the fungus and act as a reservoir for it, so there's a constant source of the fungus in the environment. 
co-researcher Dr. Claire Foster, who is also from the Finner School of Environment and Society, said the ANU-led study involved close collaboration with Professor Frank Pasmans and Dr. Stefano Canessa at the University of Ghent, Belgium, alongside 38 different amphibian and wildlife disease experts from around the world. These collaborators enabled us to get first-hand insight into what has been happening on the ground in those countries, she said. The study is published in Science and was supported by the Threatened Species Recovery Hub of the Australian government's National Environmental Science Program. There wasn't much about 2015 that didn't completely suck. My marriage was falling to pieces. My spouse had grown cold and indifferent. Our son hadn't been diagnosed with autism yet. He was still a toddler, but we knew there was something off about him. We knew something was wrong. By summer, I'd moved my belongings into the guest quarters and that became my bedroom. It was the beginning of the end with the two of us in bitter denial or possibly waiting for the other to end it first. At 5 a.m., an alarm got me up for work every weekday morning, and I spent most wakeful moments trying to find a way out of dump truck driving and construction. My spouse was less than supportive. I didn't have the funds for college. I was too busy to learn a new trade or skill. Once in a while, I'd come up with a cool sketch or painting. Sometimes I'd write a poem that people appreciated. But I didn't have the talent or skill to replace the earnings of my day job. So every weekday, it was a 10 to 12 hour shift of double clutching a tandem axle Mac. I'd haul a flatbed trailer with heavy equipment for a paving crew to get the mortgage and bills paid. The second Friday of June didn't seem any different from any other weekday. It was payday. I planned on spending time with my little one putting him to bed and getting into a cheap bottle of whiskey before passing out in the guest room. For the time being, I was still on the clock and getting ready for my last run. My foreman, Mike, asked me as a special favor to take an overloaded flatbed a few miles down the road. Normally, I would have said no, but I liked Mike. I didn't want to argue and I just wanted to wrap up the day and start my weekend. My worst-case scenario, I thought, was an overload fine from a DOT officer. The crew loaded a paver, a skid steer, and a roller onto a flatbed trailer designed to hold two-thirds of the combined weight of all that equipment. Everything was already chained down. I told the guys I'd see them in the yard after I hooked up to the trailer. I eased off the clutch and into first gear. I could feel the Mack truck struggle to pull the overloaded flatbed trailer. I got to my first traffic light without demolishing the dump truck stopped ahead of me only because I began to downshift and brake well ahead of time. I realized my seatbelt was off and tried to put it on, but it wouldn't budge. The light turned green, the sky opened up, and a torrential downpour pissed all over everything in sight. I started driving, but kept the rig 10 miles an hour below the posted speed limit convinced that would keep me safe. I passed a quarry on my left and began my descent down a steep grade on the way to my stop. I got part of the way down the ominous hill and traffic was stopped ahead in the distance. I gently applied the brakes, but the truck tires started skidding on the wet road. The trailer began to jackknife over the double yellow lines into oncoming motorists. I eased off the brakes, regained control of the trailer, and reapplied them. The same thing happened. All the while, I'm still moving towards stop traffic going 30 miles an hour downhill with a combined vehicle weight easily exceeding 60,000 pounds. The old country road had one lane headed downhill, one lane headed uphill, no shoulders, and nothing but trees on either side. As a last ditch effort, I pulled the parking brake and started stabbing at the brake pedal. Crashing a commercial truck was almost always fatal for the driver. Not having a working seatbelt wasn't really helping my odds. The cars stopped ahead were now less than two tractor trailer lengths away, and I couldn't stop the truck. I thought about my wife. I remembered being in love with her before we started hating each other. I thought about my son. I thought about the people stopped ahead and their families. 
I thought about how much it was going to suck dying in a dump truck from colliding into the trees on the side of the road. A collision was inevitable, and there was no way in hell I was going to allow innocent motorists to get killed. My last run had turned into a suicide mission. Being a non-religious heathen, I thought, perchance, there may be something close by, some ghost that watches over truckers and bikers, some spirit, perhaps, inhabiting those woods. I called out to it. Make it quick. That was my first and final prayer to whatever sprite inhabits that forest. I didn't see any fucking way possible I'd survive what I'd do next, and I didn't want to linger in agony following the crash. I just wanted my death to be swift. I turned the steering wheel away from the traffic and into the woods. As soon as my front wheels left the pavement, the bumpy, wooded terrain shook me violently, throwing me into a world of hurt like I'd never known. As an at-risk teen, I'd been jumped, hit with chains and bats. I'd been beaten mercilessly by my bastard of a father as a child. Nothing I'd experienced could have prepared me for the beating the inside of that truck put on every inch of my body. The trailer snapped off and headed into another portion of the woods. The truck roared into the forest with me as its hostage, mowing down vegetation, leaving hunks of metal all about as the tree branches of the forest fought back against this hostile, diesel-powered invasion. I gripped the wheel for dear life while smacking all about the console, the control panel, the shifter, and feeling every abrasive texture grind away at my flesh. The truck hit a big bump that sent me headfirst into the ceiling. Blood went everywhere. Then it hit a dip and skidded to a violent stop. A terrible pressure pushed into my chest. I thought I was having a heart attack. Somehow I didn't go flying through the glass as the horrifying ordeal came to an abrupt halt. As quickly as the crash ended, so did that awful blow to my chest. I exited the smoldering wreck that was once a sturdy Mack truck. I was covered in blood and had what seemed like a sheet of plastic, a grocery bag perhaps, stuck to my head. It wasn't a grocery bag hanging off my head. I didn't realize at the moment that my scalp had been partially degloved. It peeled right off my noggin, my skull exposed and blood pouring all over me. It was hanging off the side of my head, I imagine, much like a peel hanging off the side of a piece of fruit. It must have happened when I hit the ceiling of the truck's interior. What hurt more than anything at the moment was my chest. It couldn't have been the steering wheel. It wasn't a heart attack. I didn't know what it was that kung fu'd the ever-living shit out of my sternum. I was just glad I was still alive. Only moments later, I was getting put into a sea collar strapped to a backboard and loaded into an ambulance by paramedics. My Blitz t-shirt, my favorite fucking punk rock shirt, was blood-soaked and sheared off me by the medics. They took my vitals and asked questions meant to gauge my level of consciousness. Then, for a moment or two, they fell silent. Am I going to make it? I joked as I turned my head to see both medics staring at my sternum, mouths agape and eyes bugged out in bewilderment. After a second, they assured me everything would be fine and continued with routine measures during medical transport. I thought about the day's events at the hospital. I got all doped up by the docks and got my scalp stapled and bandaged and got admitted to my room. I thought about my terrible judgment, the last-minute decision, the dying man's prayer, and the blow to the chest while crashing and somehow not flying through the windshield. I thought about it all in my hospital room. I stood bare-chested before a mirror, gazing at my bruise. Across my chest, spanning about twelve inches in length, was a deep purple mark in the shape of a giant, ghastly hand. And that story was from Creepypasta.com. It is entitled Crash Hand, and it was written by Cesar Augusto Nunez. That concludes this episode of the Curseland Podcast. 
Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at curseland, so you can message me on there if you'd prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to you all later. <laughs>